Welcome back to week two of our series where we're looking at the life of Jesus and some things specifically about how he was the servant king. One of the things that that I realized this week and really not just this week, we've known uh, really as long as I've been aware of things, I know that people and times are messy. And I know that that people are messy because I'm a dad and, and if all you have to do is have a child and realize that every human being is messy. If you've ever been around a baby or if you've raised a baby or you've had an infant, you know that they're messy. How do I know that they're messy? Well, not to be gross, but truth is you just don't know which end it's going to come out of, but it's going to be messy. It's just a matter of time and somebody's got to clean up that mess. See, that's even the thing about life too, right? Sometimes it's difficult to clean up messes. Life is full of messes, messes we've created, messes other people have created. And sometimes we need to wade in and help to clean up other people's messes. But sometimes the messes are our own. (laughs) Right after I got out of the Navy, I was unemployed for two months while we were waiting to go to college. And my father-in-law asked me, he says, hey, do you want to paint what would be Marla's grandfather's home? Do you want to paint this house and, and we'll pay you? I was like, pay me to paint? That's awesome. I love that idea. Until I realized that I'm not a painter. And then it wasn't that great of an idea. And now my dad was a painter, but just because my dad's a painter doesn't mean that I'm a painter. I'd been around him a little bit. And when I got asked to do the job and I said, yes, I really wish that I had paid a little bit more attention when I was helping my dad to paint. But I tried anyway. And I didn't have all the supplies, so I kind of pieced all of this stuff together, and I borrowed my, my father-in-law's uh, ladder. And as I, as I got on the ladder, I realized that I was in a real problem because it was one of those ladders that not just that goes out, but it's one of those ones that kind of fold, and it can kind of create different shapes, and it was incredibly rusty. I got to, I painted the, both sides of the house, and it was great. The back of the house, it was great. I went to paint the front of the house where the porch is, and I had to extend the ladder all the way out. And as I extended the ladder all the way out, this ladder, it was just, again, it just wasn't that trustworthy of a ladder, but it's the only one that I had. So I grabbed my paint bucket and my paintbrush, and I'm at the top of the ladder, and I believe that, you know, I'm up at the top of the ladder, I got my brush, got my roller, I'm set and ready, and I got the, the hook for the paint bucket on the side of the ladder, until the hook was no longer attached to the ladder and then the bucket fell to the ground and then all I can still see in my mind is in here is the bucket hitting the ground the paint then flipping up in the air in slow motion all over the place and again not only is this someone in the family but I was also paid to do this and then I was also humiliated or thinking I was going to be humiliated anyway because there's no one to blame for the mess except me. So I cleaned up the mess the best that I could. A lot of it went in the grass conveniently. You cut the grass two times and it goes away. And I had a really hard time about scrubbing it off of the concrete, which it seemed to really connect to that concrete incredibly well. But I cleaned the mess up. But I tell you that story to bring about this point. Sometimes you create a mess and it's really hard to clean up. And sometimes somebody else creates a mess And yet we still feel like we have to clean it up. One of the things about Jesus and Jesus's ministry is he was never afraid to step into somebody else's mess or into something that was something uh, that would be deemed as 
messy within a society or the culture. Jesus, he knew when to step into those situations. We learned last week how we gained, how he gained the margin for that ministry. But now what we see is, what we see today is he steps into the mess and he does so with a heart of compassion. You see, we are never more like Jesus than we, when we are being compassionate towards others. That's just true. We're never more like Jesus than when we're being compassionate towards others. Compassion's an interesting thing, isn't it? To say that somebody's compassionate, we know that compassion is a timeless principle, but what we also know about compassion is this, that it needs to be timely in application. In other words, to be compassionate is to see the need and to help meet the need in that moment, because if you, if you see a need but don't, need, don't meet that need, by pure definition, you're not being compassionate. Jesus had the ability to know not only what compassion was, but also knowing when to render the aid or the word or the help or the truth or the grace or the comfort or the relationship at that time. What we're going to see today as we jump into the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 1, verse 40 through 45, is we're going to see another element of Jesus' ministry, and we're going to see what compassion looked like. We're going to see that he was moved with compassion. We're going to see why he was moved with compassion. And ultimately, what I hope to see at the back end of this, of this talk is this, that emotion moves the heart towards ministry. That emotion, our emotion, just like Jesus' emotion, it moves the heart towards ministry. That's really what compassion does. It, it moves in us in an emotional way, and it moves the heart towards ministries toward doing something or saying something. So we're going to get there eventually, but consider that our bottom line. Now let's go into the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 40. This is what it says. A man with leprosy came to him, he came to Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, verse 41. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, I love that word, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Verse 43, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you do not tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and he began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet, the people still came to him from everywhere. So now you see this an amazing miracle takes place. Jesus is moved with compassion. You see that Jesus speaks, but he also touches the man, and the man is healed. Jesus gives this, this strong or stern warning, and the reason why he gives this strong warning is because his time had not yet come for him to fully reveal that he was the Messiah. He knew that he had a lot of ministry yet to do, and now because this man disobeyed and he went out and told everyone, and notice, we're going to get to this in just a couple minutes, he was just supposed to go, in verse 44 it says, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices. Again, we're going to see this from Deuteronomy and Leviticus in just a minute. But because he disobeyed what Jesus said, now it drove Jesus out of the city, out into lonely places, 
But yet the ministry continued. Now we see at the end of, of, uh, of the chapter here, we see that yet the people still came to him from everywhere. They were looking for Jesus because they knew that Jesus had something on offer. Last week I mentioned that when you look at, look at the Gospels and something specific of the Gospels, many times when Jesus would perform a miracle, there were six different steps. So I want to go through these quickly. And because I talked at length about it last week, I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I want to show you just the a consistency in the way that Jesus modeled compassion, but also that he rendered miracles. So uh, verse 40 is what we're going to see first. We're going to see that the miracle worker arrives. Notice what it says, that the leper came to him. So now there's this connection between the man needing help and now the miracle worker. That's Jesus, of course. The second thing is the description of the illness. It says right at the beginning of verse four, of verse 40, excuse me, it says a man with what? Leprosy. So that's the issue. That's the illness. The third thing is the request. Notice what the man says at the end of verse 40. If you are willing, you can make me clean. He says, if you are willing, he's asking him, if you're willing, you can do this for me. That's his request. Notice the fourth thing, the technique or the means of healing. Notice what Jesus did in verse 41 and 42. Jesus reached out his hand and he did what? He touched the man and and he not only touched the man, but he also said two different phrases. Notice what he says first. He says, I am willing. And then he says, be clean. So not only does Jesus speak a message of healing, but he also offers a touch of healing. It's incredible to me. Hopefully it is to you too. Then we see the event of healing. That's the fifth step. Again, verse 42 says this. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. So immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. That is the the event. Now we see the demonstration. The sixth principle is the demonstration of the healing. Go a couple verses later, verse 44. What does the man do? Jesus tells him what he's supposed to do. He says, see that you do not tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So this is the way that Jesus chose because Jesus is now teaching in something that's in alignment with the Old Testament and with the custom of the day a way of demonstrating the healing. So now the man was supposed to go and he was supposed to offer the sacrifices, go to the priest and say, hey, I'm healed and wait for the priest to confirm that he was indeed healed. I want to drill down on what leprosy is because it's not really something that plagues us in our day. But leprosy is a skin disease and it's a skin disease that caused Physical, emotional, and physical pain. So physical, emotional, and mental pain. The the physical pain because of the sores that it would create. The emotional pain because if you had leprosy, you were cast out of the society. They feared that it would spread to them. So they cast you out of society. They, They lived out of the town away from society. And they couldn't come back into the society unless some certain things happen. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But also, so now the physical, dealing with with the disease itself, the emotional toll of being separated from people, no hugs, right? No hugs. And we know what that feels like even to a little degree. 
of going through COVID, but imagine this going on for months and months and years and years and years until a person would eventually die uh, with leprosy because, again, there was no cure. And now the mental pain of, hey, there's no cure coming. Imagine the, the toll that would take on a soul. This was a widespread disease without a cure. And what was so confusing about this, there was a lot of superstition and fear that surrounded leprosy because it, it, the scribes of the day, they thought that there were about 72 different illnesses. They thought that about 72 different illnesses could be leprosy. So they treated all of these, these illnesses like their leprosy. They treated all of them like that. So even if you had something that was only temporary, just to, be, uh, just to take precautions, they treated you like you were a leper. And a leper, again, they could not be around society. And anytime they were around people, they had to yell, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine, again, the toll that that would take on a soul? So there was, there was confusion and there was fear, fear that was rampant about that. And now it was so difficult as skin diseases even today, they're difficult to diagnose and they're difficult to heal. So now we, we feel just a, just a fraction of what a leper must have felt like in their culture. Well, there was certain ways that if somebody were healed, maybe it was a skin disease that they had labeled as being leprosy, but it wasn't. Uh, but they were labeled as that. And now maybe they were healed and they wanted to come back to society certain ways that they could do so. And, and one of the things that kind of will lead us in, in this direction is something that says in Deuteronomy 24, 8, it says, in cases of leprous diseases, be very careful to do exactly as the priest who are Levites instruct you. You must follow carefully what I have commanded them. So now, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to go to the priest. Once they are not showing signs of the disease or whatever the, the ailment was of their skin. Now they're supposed to go to the priest. Also, in order for this to happen, uh, it, for, for them to be acclimated back to society, the way that they would do it is lined out in Leviticus 14. I'll just read to you what this is in Leviticus 14. This is what the Word of God says. The Lord said to Moses, these are the regulations for the diseased person at the time of his ceremonial cleansing that he is brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine him if the person has been healed of his infectious disease. Notice what it says next. The person that continues a little bit later, the person to be cleansed must wash his clothes, shave off all of his hair and bathe with water. Then he will be ceremonial clean. After this, he may come into the camp and he must stay outside his tent for seven days. This is the whole process to having a person to be acclimated back into society, to be around people again. After this, this is what the verse says as we continue our reading of Leviticus 14, verses 8 and 9. After this, he may come into the camp, but he must stay outside his tent for seven days. On the seventh day, he must shave off all of his hair. He must shave his head, his beard, his eyebrows, and the rest of his hair. He must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water, and he will be clean. 
Now, this was the extent that a person would have to go through. Think about how humiliating this is. Not that having leprosy isn't, or, or the thought of leprosy wasn't humiliating enough. Now they have to shave all of the hair off their body. That way that people would be able to look at them and say, hey, there's no sores anymore. It's just, it's an incredible amount of thing. And even when somebody had leprosy, this is part of the lifestyle that they had to lead. And this you see in actually Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. This is what it says. A person with such an infectious disease must tear clothes, let his hair be unkept, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long he ha- as he has the infection, he remains unclean. Read this with me. It's on the screen. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. I mean, to think about what we've just gone through through the last couple months and all the complaining that that we have all heard about people having to be shut in their houses. But let's, let's be honest. I mean, you could still go to the store. Many of us have Netflix or we have the Internet. We probably all have the Internet. We have these different types of things. And yet we were... You know, we were at home, sheltered at home, but yet we had all these things to, to entertain us, if you will. But not a leper. They had to live outside of the city and they had to live alone, away from people. This is the epitome of social distancing. This is an extreme that we simply cannot really understand or even fathom. See, this isn't just a description of an illness it's, this, it's a sentencing to a lifestyle, a lifestyle that, 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 was, that would just taint someone in society. There'd be a lifestyle that people viewed that they had to protect themselves from these unclean people. The disease robbed them of their health and the sentence that was imposed on them robbed them of their name. No more did they have the name, whatever they were given at birth, but now they were just a leper. They lost their name. They they lost their occupation. They couldn't go to work. They lost whatever their habits were before that. They're gone. Their family couldn't see them. They were separated from society. No more fellowship. Again, uh, what we just read in in Leviticus 13, they had to live alone out, out in a solitary place. So no fellowship and no worshiping community. They couldn't be even with the people of God. Lepers were considered dead, even though they were alive. They were considered dead, even though they were alive. Let's go back into our original passage, and it says at the beginning of verse 41, something about Jesus that I want to spend really the rest of our time talking about. It says, filled with compassion, and it's talking about Jesus. At the point of healing, when Jesus reached out his hand and then he spoke those words. Remember the words that he spoke. He says, I'm willing. And then he says, be clean. You see, Jesus is is showing us something about himself, but he's also showing us something about the new family of God. He's showing something about himself. And this is something that we would see in other passages. And another passage I just want to bring to your attention is is going to come from the Gospel of Matthew in, in chapter 9, verse 36 through 38. And this is what it says about Jesus. It says, when he saw the crowds, 
He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He looked at people and he saw the people needing direction, spiritual direction, political direction, just direction within, their, within the culture. Like everything was broken. Not that different than us today. In Jesus, he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. And notice the comparison that he uses, like sheep without a shepherd. But I really want to drill down on what it says in verse 37, because the first part I think is, is somewhat familiar to us. But, I, but notice this transition in verse 37, and it's one continual thought. So not only does Jesus, he, he recognizes compassion towards these people, and he says that they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he, sa- he, he just looks at them as if they're harassed and helpless. But notice what it says in the very next verse. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Why would these two things be connected? Well, let me tell you, it's because Jesus, he's pointing out the condition of the people and he's also pointing out his heart towards their brokenness. And then he tells the workers, he says, now I'm sending you out to be compassionate and help in the healing and give direction for the world around you. This is not that different than what God is doing even today. I mean, even at the point of the offer of salvation, what we would read from, from Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God demonstrated His love for us. That that love was shown out. There was compassion, I believe, and it doesn't say that in that passage, but, but I believe that He's that he's also still looking at us and that God demonstrated his own love for us because we were broken, we were bankrupt, we were helpless. We, that, that was our story. We were sheep without a shepherd. And while we were still sinners and lost in our sin, he died for us. Jesus showed compassion towards us. And he wants us to show compassion towards Others. I mean, that's what the gospel is about, right? It's about a, a God who, who not only is a loving God, but he shows the greatest act of love. Couldn't we agree that there's a level of compassion there of Jesus submitting himself to the cross, humbling himself, taking the, the form of a servant? Not just the form, but the function. I mean, his whole life he was the servant leader and now coming to earth. I mean, Maybe even when it comes to Jesus, there are certain things that we expect. We expect Jesus to be compassionate. Maybe it's like, you know, we kind of put expectations to be, we expect other people to maybe be compassionate. You know some people we expect to be compassionate? Nurses, don't we? Like, think about it. Don't we expect nurses to be compassionate? I know we have many nurses. Some of you may be listening right now and you're like, okay, where are you going with this? I mean, we just, we just accept this like nurses we expect them to be compassionate. And if they're not compassionate, it really stands out. I know this firsthand. When, whenever I had gone to the MEP station to sign up for the Navy, I was around this nurse. And I had spent a lot of time with this nurse. And, and I'm not really sure, but, but 
as memory serves me right, I, I think like my, my thought was she probably like lost compassion either a long time ago or she never had it. And, and my, my mom worked as in the nursing industry for years. And so I've been around nurses and, and compassion and mercy ministry and those types of things. I've just seen that. And yet when, when I had this interaction with this nurse, I was like, I think you might have been a person who like stormed the beaches of Omaha. I'm not really sure. I don't know why you're a nurse. Like Nurse Ratchet, actually that was not her name, but the nurse, some of you get that reference, she was not very compassionate. And what was kind of a betrayal is you expect nurses to be that way. And she was far from compassionate. We just expect that of certain people. But I want you to know that in, in accordance with God's word, what it says in Colossians 3, 11 through 14, I'll read this for us. This is what it says in Colossians 3, 11 through 14. Here, there is no Jew, or no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Greek, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, if you are in Christ, there is nothing that should separate us because Christ is all and we are in, or Christ is in all. And Christ is our, as I would say, our all in all, as a song I used to sing in kids' ministry. This is, this is how God views us and this is how we need to view ourselves as being a part of the new family of God. It doesn't matter what your story was beforehand. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your race is. If you're part of the new family of God, this is the expectation one to the other, no exceptions. Notice what this passage says next in verse 12. This is where I'm reading from. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. And then it says kindness, humility, greatness, and patience. Bear with each other, forgiving whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In other words, just as the gospel has shaped you, allow the gospel to form you, reform you, flow through you, and be the very vehicle of which you would remember that you need to forgive other people, even if you have discrepancies against them, even if you have disagreements with them, even if you're not seeking, even if you don't see things you know, eye to eye, you move beyond those grievances and you forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, even if you think you're right. And how the Apostle Paul finishes out verse 14 is with this. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I'm going to go back to the word compassion. The word compassion there, it means to be moved in one's bowels. Now I realize you hear that and you're probably thinking something else, right? You're probably thinking something else. So what the meaning is and conveying that into English, it means something, it means something more like to say that your heart was moved. So to be compassionate means that your heart was moved or that your heart is moved. I'll say it in a different way. It's, it's one's intense inner feelings should always lead to outer compassionate acts of mercy and kindness. In other words, from, from inside you, from your heart, 
compassion. It, it starts in our emotional base and, and it moves the heart towards ministry. One's intense inner feelings. Maybe to be shaped into, into Jesus in the way that we see people. Instead of seeing people who are political operatives. Instead of seeing people who live on the other side of town. Instead of seeing people who are, well, those people are rich or those people are poor or those people are work or those people are lazy. Instead, view them through the eyes of Jesus when he saw people who were helpless. And let this shape us to our core. Let this shape us to be the people that God wants us to be. Here's how we can do this. Here's how we can do this. Let's go back to the original passage. Again, Jesus, he did this. He says, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. He says, I'm willing, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. You see, the the touch of Jesus speaks more loudly than his words. And the words of Jesus touch the leper more deeply than any act of human love. You see these, these two things coming together. It's the touch of Jesus. It speaks more loudly than his words. And it's the words of Jesus. They touch the leper more deeply than any act of human love. I believe that we can sum it up in this way. If we're to be people of compassion, one could say that being compassionate takes heart. A heart like Jesus's. It takes a heart. Because if it's true that emotion moves the heart towards ministry, there has to be an engagement of the heart. There has to be a walk with God, our vertical relationship with God that is so deep and so rich and that we are so entrenched in grace that instead of looking around to see the things that divide us, instead look for things that unite us. That comes from the heart. That's not a mental pursuit. That's a pursuit of the heart. I also think that it's a matter of the eyes. I think it's a matter of seeing people the way that Jesus did. Seeing people again who were helpless. People who who needed compassion. They didn't need judgment. They needed compassion. And if there's supposed to be something that that moves, and if the Spirit is going to move deeply within us, trust me, not only is it going to start in the heart, but also... Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God working through us is going to give us eyes to see what Jesus sees. People who need our compassion. The third thing is this, our hands. We can expect to get dirty. We can expect to jump into places that are messy. We can expect to jump into, into situations where where the Spirit of God would want us to clean up a mess that we didn't create. 
that as Christ's ambassadors in this day and age, in this time, that he would want us to step into places. And we're going to get our hands dirty. We just are. And I believe that's one of the high calls on the Christian life. That's what compassion would call us to do. There's also going to be an interaction with the mind. You may say, well, is this just a basis of knowledge? No, let's just be honest. That would be way too easy. When I talk about the mind, I'm talking about as we've connected all these other things, as we've connected them, as we've connected the heart and the eyes and the hands, it's going to be an engagement of the mind of how to solve real problems. How to think outside of our bias. How to, how to think outside of, of the things that separate us. Instead, to, to have the mind of Christ in this moment. And let me tell you something you already know. Our world is broken. Our streets are on fire. Our, our streets are on fire from cars being burned. Our cities are on fire. There's windows being broken. There's places being looted. There's people who, who have good reason to walk and to protest in the streets about racial injustice in our country. It demands the people of God to walk with those who, who stand for the right things, not with those who are rioting and not for those who are burning down buildings. Those people need to be dealt with with justice. but we need to meet those who are actually crying out because of racial injustice, because maybe some other types of injustices that are going on, and to think, engage our mind into new ways to solve the old problems. And the last one is this. You can expect that if you have your heart that has been engaged and emotion moves the heart towards ministry, you can just bet that you're going to have to speak up. And I'm calling you. Maybe you're the one person who's listening and watching right now. I'm calling you to step up. I'm calling you to do what it is that God's spurring you to do. I don't want you to get even one half step outside of what God wants you to do. But if, if the Holy Spirit is just impressing upon you right now, there's something you need to do to engage in a problem in the world, trust me, it's going to take heart, hands, eyes, your mind, and it's going to take your voice. After all, back to the story of Jesus, then I'm through. Notice what Jesus did. He engaged in two different ways. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. He touched the one who was supposed to be untouchable. Let that sink. But not only did he touch him, he didn't push him away. Instead, he says, I am willing. Be clean. Wow. How the world would be changed if the people of God, because we're part of the new family of God, if we would embrace this message of compassion and say, I'm willing, God send me in Jesus' name.